Good morning. How is everyone? All right, one person's good. All right, I'll pray for the rest of you. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Look, it's 9 o'clock, folks. That's amazing. You guys did a great job. Everyone, yeah, clap for yourselves. <laughs> We're going to be actually um, having some uh, book giveaways throughout the day, so there should be a little piece of paper on your uh spot in front of you, so make sure you put your name on it so you can be a part of the book giving draw, drawing giveaway. Yeah, there we go. So we're going to start with some worship, and then we will get started with our first speaker of the morning. Will you all stand with me? Father, thank you for um, last night and for the words that we heard. We ask today, God, that you continue to uh, let us hear from you, speak through each of the speakers today by your spirit. I pray, God, you'd use the worship right now. Help us to um, get focused on the things of you and that you would uh, set our hearts, our minds on things above, not on things of this earth, as Colossians talks about. We thank you that we can gather um, as saints, as the called ones, uh, to worship you, Lord, to hear your word, and for you to speak to us, God. So that's what we ask today that you uh, would be here present, we acknowledge your presence, and ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We want to hear from you, Lord, so speak to us through your word, God, and let us respond accordingly. We pray this with the authority that we have in Jesus. Amen. Our first speaker today is one of our very own, David Snyder. Don't come up yet, David. <clears throat> but you guys can clap for him. Go ahead. <clears throat> We're going to have a little quiz of how long David and Susie have been at Liberty. Raise your hand if you want to take a get. Nope, sorry, Riley, not calling on you. <laughs> That's inside information. Come on, someone's got to take a guess. Jerry? Ten years. Ten, look at that. Wow, you got it. You nailed it. They started coming right after you guys. Okay, there you go. And... It's today, right? It's their anniversary today. <clears throat> I won't throw David under the bus and tell you that he thought it was tomorrow. <laughs> and I also won't throw him under the bus and said that his anniversary gift to Susie was her hearing him speak this morning. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He did not say that. He did not say that. When they did come here, they had two children, and as it seems to work uh, at Liberty, they now have five children. Watch out for the water, folks. Anyway, I'm excited to hear from David. Give it up for David Snyder. All right, we're going to start by um, reading from Scripture uh, here in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. So if you'd like to turn there, please do. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ 
who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourself once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, for Anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ has forgiven you, you so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm not worthy of this. I come to you, Lord, I I come to you with any humility I can muster. Lord, please let people hear you. Please get me out of the way. And Lord, teach us and open our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so it's Wednesday night, 17 days ago. I received an email from Pastor Bond, invitation to speak at this uh, foundation conference, and I was scared to death to open it, <laughs> but I did. Uh, in there, there was a list of things. Here's all the things that we're going to talk about or we'd like you to talk about um, with the speakers here, and there were six listed, four were taken already, so I'm like, well, at least I'm not the bottom of the barrel, right? I, there's, there's two left, and I get to choose, and I, I remember writing back to Mike and saying, I, I'm not an expert at either of these two things. This is like a conference, and they're expecting to have an expert here, and, and, uh, and uh, I've said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to let the sovereignty of God work this out and um, an election and let uh, 
Pastor Bond pick it for me. So he did. Um, and so that's how you got me here. Flourish. How do we flourish as disciples in the home? Um, and I was thinking, well, at least I'm not the bottom of the barrel. And then as things unfolded, I saw that the other one that wasn't chosen for me was not taken. So I am the bottle, bottom of the barrel, just so you know that. Um, I'd like to make, get some clarity also at the vision. You know, we, we talked about, uh, Pastor Bond talked about the 2020, you know, as being probably a lot of churches talking about vision. Actually, 2019 is better. If you have 2019 vision, you're actually better than 2020. So that's good. The other thing that kind of had, and we're going to talk about humility in a second, the other thing that was uh, kind of humbling was to see my name in the list of names. Um, speakers this year include Pastor Michael Bond, Pastor Joe Braden, Pastor, Pastor, and David Snyder. So, <laughs> and then, then Mike made sure that I was going to give a bio um, I'm like, I go to Liberty. Uh, I'm a Christian. Um, anyway, I thank my wife uh, for letting me do this today. Um, it's our anniversary, and, and uh, you might say you should take him after this. Um, make sure he doesn't come up on your anniversary again. All right. So I've got a truck through this. Uh, this... Because I didn't have a lot of time, I would love to have about two months to kind of formulate things. I know that doesn't work that way in life. But I, what I did is I went back to, there's a Sunday morning group we meet, 9 a.m. Lorraine, I got the plug in, right? Uh, she's always bugging me. I'm not a very good salesperson. So um, we meet, and we had a couple of studies. One study we did a while back was on sanctification. And then we just got done with a study on gospel clarity. And so this is kind of a mishmash. You know? So if you come to the Sunday morning group, you might ask Mike for some sort of refund because this is a rehash of those things. So we'll start with humility. Um, the great country singer, Mac Davis, he penned the, the lyrics to this iconic song. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. It's, it's tough to be humble, isn't it? We love ourselves. We, how much we love ourselves typically indicates how much pride we have. Pride is such an issue, isn't it? It's, it's what we would identify as the one thing that probably keeps us from salvation or the person from salvation that we're witnessing to. It's pride. It's, it's pride and humility, which is the essence of what salvation is all about. Matthew 23, 12. I'm going to go through verses. I don't expect you to turn to them. They're in the notes, but I'll read it. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 4 through 6 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that when the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, James harkens back to the Old Testament in Proverbs where he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in order to first be welcomed into the kingdom of God, by God himself, we are to humble ourselves as a child. And while that sounds easy, it ain't. Why? Because we love ourselves. Proverbs 26 says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Why would this be that man would proclaim his own goodness? Do you guys remember about 10, 15 years ago, a big purple dinosaur named Barney? Well, I'm going to change the words a little bit because I love me and you love you. We are to stop loving ourselves this way and love others more. That is the character and nature of our God. He loves people and he cares for people. The emulation of Jesus is what we should have in mind. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he told us this in Mark 12, 30-31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So listen, do you think God would have given us a commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves if we truly hate ourselves? The world's answers to these problems that we have in our life, specifically our problems, is that we don't have enough self-esteem. Book after book in the secular realm, I would say in the Christian realm as well, if you've ever been in a Christian bookstore, you'll see it. They're they're trying to tell us that our problem is our lack of self-esteem. However, if that was the case, why would Jesus tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves? If I really loathe myself, if I hate myself, why would Jesus command me to love my neighbor that way? It just doesn't make sense. So we're going to start at looking at how Jesus loves. I'm going to take 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6. I'm going to take that, and you guys all know it, right? You've heard it at every wedding ceremony you've been at. You probably had it on a Valentine's card just a couple of weeks ago. Love is patient, love is kind. But we're, we're going to, instead, we're going to insert Jesus where love is. Because our God is love, right? So we're going to start. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable 
or resentful. He does, Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. Our God is love. He is this and more. Are you and I displaying love? Are we displaying this type of love? Are we this loving? Instead, this time, we're going to go through it again. When I read it, insert your name. Are you patient and kind? Do you envy or boast? Are you not arrogant or rude? Do you insist on your own way? Are you married? You are not irritable or resentful. You do not rejoice at the wrongdoing, but you rejoice with truth. We started talking, this whole thing, we started talking about humility. And if you don't become truly humbled by putting your own name in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm not sure what's going to make you humble. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not for only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. How loving are we towards other people? This isn't easy, Remember? I love me, and you love you. So let's get to the bottom of the problems. In our homes, in our marriages, our families, our jobs, whatever it might be. How we interact with each other here at church. Let's get to the bottom here. If you're not a Christian, I can't get to the bottom of your problems with this. Actually, the bottom of your problem is you aren't saved. That's the bottom. But if you are a Christian, what's your problem? Do you hate your job? My spouse isn't everything that I wanted him or her to be. Oh, the kids, they're nightmares. (laughs) These days, secular psychology will tell us the problem that you're having, the feelings that you're having, are because of lack of self-esteem. So let's ask the question biblically. Is there such a thing as lack of self-esteem? Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Paul here, in this great passage on how marriage is to work, commands husbands to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Listen to this again. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So what exactly is this lack of self-esteem? God here, we're going to attempt to answer it. God here, speaking through Ezekiel prophetically, in Ezekiel 20, 43 says, And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled. And you shall loathe yourself in your own sight because of all the evils you have committed. 
Why does one loathe themselves? I think the simple answer to that is guilt. So the world and their secular psychology says the reason you're so blue or you don't feel good is you don't love yourself. Or you don't love yourself enough. But we just learned we do love ourselves, so that's not the issue. We love ourselves too much, that's the issue. Take a look at it this way. If you hated yourself so much, would you really want your life to improve? Have you ever wanted the life of a person that you hated or disliked or whatever that is, however you put it? Did you ever want their life to improve? If you did really hate yourself, you, you wouldn't want your life to be better. You would want it to be worse. So what are the sad feelings? The lack of good feelings that we have about ourselves? It's not self-esteem, it's sin. More specifically, the feelings that come from sin. When we sin, we feel bad. So again, our problem is, is not the feelings. The feelings are what's presenting. So let me suggest that we have a presentation layer, a layer to our problems, it's, it's what we think the problem is. It's up here. The feeling that we're having is, is defined as a presentation problem. The presentation problem is not the cause of the problem, but it's the effect of the problem. And it sounds like, I hate, I don't like, I feel bad. That's the presentation problem. It's manifested feelings that are not the actual problem. Your job is not the problem. Your spouse is not the problem. Your kids are not the problem. Your pastor is not the problem. Don't get me wrong, any of these can be annoying or deficient, right? But they're not the problem. The problem is underneath this presentation layer. So what's underneath the presentation layer? It's the presentation layer problem. It's the performance problem. You're like, come on, let's get to the point. What's the performance problem? I'm glad you asked. It's, it's right under the presentation problem, all right? The real issue is the performance problem, and it's sin. Psalm 38, 3 through 5 says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Listen again to verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. So here's how it works. You say, my problem is my spouse. It's my work. It's my kids. But they're not the problem. You think they're the problem, but they're not. The problem is actually underneath your feelings about what you believe the problem to be in the first place. Underneath there is the real problem. It's sin. 
In some way it's sin. If you get angry, you get jealous, you covet. It can be anxiety, it can be depression. It's some sin. You are sinning, therefore you're feeling rotten. Again, secular psychology will tell us, and Christians for that matter, will tell us that your problem is self-esteem. I've not found any biblical evidence for this at all. I'd be willing to talk to anybody who thinks they have biblical evidence on this. I'm willing to be corrected. Um, I have not seen it, though. I do not see that self-esteem is the problem. There might be some twisting of verses, but I found no concrete evidence within the Bible that says a lack of self-esteem is our issue. All I see biblically is there's too much love of self. So let me put it this way. Your bad feelings that we have towards problems that are going on are like a check engine light. At the Snyder house, we have a round robin of check engine lights on our cars. All right? They are annoying, and sometimes it's not even a round robin. It just actually happens on more than one uh, at a time. But they're annoying, right? You're driving at night in this big yellow engine. It's not actually a big, but it seems big. It's just in your eyes. It's glaring. It's, it's annoying. But it's supposed to be annoying, right? It's supposed to tell you that there's a deeper problem. It does not tell you what the problem is. You have to diagnose the problem. You have to get below just that indicator. Some of us might try to cover up the indicator. A Sharpie or a piece of tape or, and some of you might be really inclined to go reach behind the dashboard if you can get there and pull the light out. But, but that's not really the way we're supposed to deal with it. We're supposed to get to the problem because there can be major problems deep below. So this dashboard light, these problems that we have, they're a visceral discomfort. And it's God's structure. It's his means of telling us that we have violated his standards. The presentation problem, your feelings, is what you think the problem is. But you need to diagnose the problem deeper. The problem isn't the light on the dashboard. The problem is going on below that. The dashboard's just the indicator. So what's going on below the indicator? Our presentation problem. It's sin. Our performance problem, right? Now we're going to go one step below. What is causing the sin? You might say, well, I am. Well, that's an easy answer. But really, what's causing the sin is called the preconditioning problem. And I'm going to cut to the chase. This is almost always exclusively an idol. Idolatry is the problem. We are always loving something more, and almost all the time, it's ourselves more than our God. An idol is something we worship, love, desire, and it's replacing our worship, love, and desire for our God. Greg Beale wrote in his book, We Become What We Worship. He said this, What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration, either into distortion of creation, an idol, or into the image of the creator. 
He in his book traces the theme throughout scripture to show us that we are worshipers and that we worship and what that our worship exposes us and changes us. We either revere the world and are conformed to the sinful patterns of the world or we revere God and are progressively conformed into his likeness. So we have problems. These are problems that are presented and make us feel a certain way. We're angry, we're hating, we have resentment, and we're feeling bad. Again, let me repeat, these are feelings because you're sinning. And I'm sinning because I have an idol. I'm loving something more than my Savior. Understanding this principle is so crucial to your sanctification and your joy. Ultimately, really, it's crucial to our worship of God. When we run into something that's a big bummer and it's making us feel bad and causes distress, even depression, before running to other answers, examine your hearts to know what is the sin. Remember, it's the sin that's causing the bad feelings. When we go even a bit deeper, we find out exactly what the idol is. We have to lay the axe to the root of the tree. What is the problem, sin? What is the idol I have that I worship, that I love, that I desire, that's replacing my worship, love, and desire for God? Idolatry is causing us to sin, which causes us to feel bad. So simply, what is our problem or your problem? What is your sin and what is your idol? So what does this all look like? Let's start here. I hate my job. That's my presentation problem, right? It's not my real problem. It's my sin towards my job that's my problem. I'm hating people there. I'm hating my circumstance. I don't feel like they're treating me fairly. I'm angry. The result? I'm feeling bad. So the question again is, what's underneath my problem? It's my idol. Could be a lot of things. You have to figure that all out for yourself. It could be that I have a, an idol of a really great corner office with a great job, and I covet that other job. Therefore, I hate the job I'm in. Therefore, I feel really bad. And by the way, the job that I have is the one that God graciously supplied for me. Maybe it's your spouse. Your spouse is driving you up the wall. If he or she would just do this, hold on a second, you're sinning. Your spouse is not the problem. You are hating your spouse Maybe you're hating God because you're angry for the spouse that he gave you. Now you have to figure out what's causing the sin. Surprise, surprise, it's an idol. Maybe it's your imagination of what the perfect wife or husband should be. Maybe you're the idol because you just think you need and deserve a better sweetie. Again, you have to get to the root of what's making these bad feelings, which is the idol. Same thing is true with kids, right? 
They can be little nightmares. We know that. And I mean, we know that because we teach catechism here. Um, just kidding. But then they move from little nightmares and they become teenagers, and that's worse. Again, you'll appreciate this teenagers in 20 years, trust me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Again, I'll suggest to you that they're not the problem. My bad feelings are coming from my sin. I'm angry at the kids. I'm frustrated with life. I want it to be better. I'm coveting. My circumstances need to be different, so I'm coveting. You have to figure out what's below that. What's your idol? You think you deserve more. You want your life to be like your neighbor's. Right? They have great kids. Or a friend on Facebook. Social media should be called something else because it causes us to covet. Idolatry is in that. Figure out what your idol is, and then you're going to know what your sin is, and then you're going to know why you're having bad or guilty feelings. There's a caution here, however. This is where it gets really crucial. Once you figure out what your idol is, what your sin is, you don't need behavior modification. You have to deal with the idol and replace it with the truth, with its Jesus. And how we're going to do this, I've got seven steps. All right? Remember the gospel, step number one. You have to be grounded in the gospel. You have to remember the gospel. If you just follow these steps, then it's work righteousness. It, it amounts to legalism, which amounts to moralism. Our motivation must be to please the one who died for us, and that's King Jesus. Hate, number two, hate and kill any idol that is not Jesus. When you see the little idol causing the problem, hate it. And if you can't hate it, if that's the problem, then ask the Lord to help you hate it. Ask Him to reveal the vile nature that is idolatry. Remember that the idol is competing for the throne of your heart that belongs to Jesus. Not that it stands any chance, it belongs to Jesus. But you are making it compete against your Savior. An idolatrous understanding of a God is always at the core of pride of man. But when the holiness of the law of God is paraded before the sinful heart, it stirs the conscience and humbles a man. It brings him to his rightful place. It's on his face before an almighty God. Isaiah 2.17 says, The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Step three, learn theology. If you don't replace the present bad thinking with good, true thinking, or even know how to identify your idol, you'll be floundering. What is Floundering. It's the opposite of flourishing. Be in the word, seek and pray for wisdom. Number four, repent and keep on repenting. 
When you figure out your idol, say you're sorry to God. Turn from that idol. Rinse and repeat as needed. Number five, make it right and forsake the idol. When you realize you're an idolater and you've been sitting, you have to correct it not only with your God, that's first and foremost, you should have done that in the step before, but with those you've wronged. In some case, you've bruised or wounded them. So you have to make it right. Number six, train yourself in righteousness. Now that you've identified your true problem, pray that the Lord will help you make changes in your life on, on the surface and in the heart. You have to be retrained in righteousness. Sin becomes patterns. They have to be worked out. Patterns of righteousness should replace your sinning, your idolatry. This is what's told in Ephesians 4, 22 through 23, by putting off the old man and putting on the new man. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Finally, number seven. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself. You're probably saying, wait a second, that was the first thing. Yep, it's the number one thing, it's the number two thing, it's the number three thing, it is the thing, it is everything. Preach the gospel to yourself. How do you ultimately desire to have King Jesus on the throne instead of your idol? It's by understanding who he is, who I am, and what he's done for me. When you understand amazing grace, his outlandish kindness then you will love and desire him more than anything else. You will want him seated on the throne of your heart instead of any other idol, including yourself. So remember the gospel. Simply, that is, Jesus died for sinners. I am a vile, wretched sinner. But God is gracious, awesome, merciful Savior. To kill these idols, we must be gospel-centered. We must understand this. We must go deep, specifically, into the centrality of the gospel in our lives so that we can destroy the idols of our hearts. We must see the depths of our sins and the depth and height, the width, the length of God's love and his grace. So how do we apply this gospel to our lives? How does this work itself out in my relationships, at my home, at my work, within the body? Are you married? Do you have children? Why are you in relationships with people at church or elsewhere? It's about the gospel. When it comes to marriage, your goal as a husband and wife is to get to the finish line so you can hear Jesus say, well done. With your children, the goal is not simply to have them well behaved, or kids who don't get up your nose. It's to lead them to the joys of being in a right relationship with their God through Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel. When I think about relationships with people, when they do something that might annoy me or cause me to sin, 
Remember the idolatry? Remember the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. I shouldn't strive for correct behavior per se. I mean, who doesn't want great behavior in their kids? You just do, right? But that's not the main point. I want the relationships with people I know and love to not just behave rightly, but to believe rightly, to know God rightly, and ultimately receive his forgiveness. So then when I think about conflict in my home, when I think I've got an issue, there's a rub with something that's going on, or somebody's doing something that's just making me crazy. How do I want to be thinking about the confrontation that I'm going to have with them over their sin? If we're honest about it, we're not the only sinner in the house, right? I might be the biggest sinner in the house, and that's actually something I'll get to in a bit, but I'm definitely not the only sinner. So I'm dealing with other sinners I want to approach them in light of the gospel. This means I don't want to be criticizing. I want to be encouraging, building up, leading them to the cross so that they can look more and more like Jesus. The gospel centrality of this thinking, it changes everything. Our mindset is, if it is this, I want to encourage, I want to lift up, I want to build up, I want to lead them to the cross so that they can know the love of Jesus so that they respond to and start living rightly. It's different than criticizing. It's preaching the gospel. We want, them, we want to lead them to the cross so that they can know the love of Jesus and respond to that and start living rightly. If this is our task, our task can be joyful. We actually get to preach the gospel. We have to remember this is not just about correcting behavior. It's leading someone to the cross so they can grow. Another word for grow, grow is flourish. This is what we want, right? If I were to ask, if I were to, if somebody were to ask me, do, they, do I want my child to be obedient and to do all the right things? Hopefully, I would say, I want them to grow in Christ. If we go with behavior modification, that's completely on the outside. They may behave pretty well overall, and then they get to be 18, they go out the door, and the next thing you know, you got yourself a prodigal. I was one of them. You spend so many days so many hours, just your life wondering what went wrong. Maybe it's because you've done nothing but criticize. We have to get back to encouragement, exhorting to godliness, motivated by the gospel. So how do we build up in a conflict? Here's another list. Prepare your heart and check your motives. I don't know if any time in history, and I don't know all about history, but I do in the short time I've been here, 
if there's been another time in my short time that we've been so sensitive. Sometimes someone does something that just sets us off. There are times that anger can be the right response if it's a righteous anger, but we have to remember this is always about the gospel. My goal should not be to vent my anger on somebody. It should be leading somebody to the cross where they can be reminded of the forgiveness that they have in Jesus. So when I approach somebody to just hammer them with their sin, what am I doing? I'm forgetting the gospel. I'm actually trying to get some sort of payment extraction for their sin. If the person I'm confronting is a Christian, who has paid for their sin? Jesus did. Why would I be asking for more payment? What am I expecting them to be punished for? Maybe a little bit more? Why? When Jesus was punished for them. If the person... We must, we must pause before we enter a confrontation and find out where our hearts is. We need to slow down, let the situation simmer in our hearts, sleep on it, and check our hearts. Luke 6.45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Prepare and check your motives. Number two, pray for wisdom. We need wisdom. We need smarts. Where does that come from? Doesn't come from us, doesn't come from me. It only comes from God. James 1.5 says, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Number three, remember the sewer God pulled you out of. Whenever we approach somebody in confrontation, you know those pathetic sinners? We have a tendency to be smug, maybe have an air of a superiority, and the person we're dealing with is going to smell it. They're going to know it. You're not really here to help me. You're just here to berate me because you think you're better. But when I remember the gospel, I know I'm nothing more than a piece of filth that God graciously saved. I think Luther, it's just attributed to Luther anyway, he called us as Christians snow-covered dung. So, and just by chance, as I'm more mature in some cases, in my house in a lot of cases, um, and I mean that by age, um, I could be down the road just a bit farther in sanctification. But if I failed to remember the cesspool that he saved me from, I won't handle confrontation in a godly way. So, somewhat related, step four, somewhat related to the last one is come as a fellow sinner. That's all I am. Number five, start with a compliment. All right, 
This is so Pauline, right? You guys are doing such a good job in these areas. Then you whack them. <laughs> so start, honestly, start by letting them know that you're seeing so much evidences of grace in their life. And then get to the conflict. Think of it this way. My son, he did it again. He didn't clean up his clothes like he was supposed to. I told him again and again and again, I'm so torqued off. Am I supposed to say torqued off? I'm not sure. Is that okay? Is that okay to say torqued off? I'm not sure. All right, all right. But we, we get that way. We get so torqued off. And I killed Jesus. It's a little tough to be torqued with somebody when you have a correct gospel perspective. Another little tidbit. I've been trying to apply it to my life for a while now. I'm the biggest sinner in the house. If you can get your mindset on that, if you can, can kind of have your mind set in that motion, when things come up and you're getting ticked off, you'll remember the gospel. Number six, remind the person of your love for them. You just paid them a compliment, right? I really see growth in these areas. Remember, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to encourage growth, flourish. We don't want to tear down. We, we don't want them to just behave a certain way. We want to build up. We want to encourage. We love our kids, right? Our spouses, right? If our heart cannot earnestly say something like, hey, Son or daughter, I've been seeing this thing in your life and I, I want you to know I love you very, very much. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, not, not to mention that I'm your dad and I love you like crazy. If you can't say something like this, you probably shouldn't be having the confrontation. If we're not truly there to build up, we're probably there to just get even. Number seven, if this is truly a conflict, confess your sins as necessary. Most likely, if you're married for, let's say, a day or more, when there's a conflict, chances are very good that you're not just the only one sinning. It could be, but we need to check our hearts and find out if we have sin and confess it. There are, I, I, I suggest this, that the chances are really good that we have done something sinful. Maybe we should be asking, actually it's not a maybe, we should be asking, did what I did was, this, was it a sin against you? And then when we ask a question, we have to be ready for the answer. Right? 
because you're probably going to hear you've sinned in some way. We want God to change us, right? We want that to happen. We want to grow. We want to flourish. Take this feedback and confess and forsake your sins. This tells the other person that I care about the gospel, I care about the spiritual growth, and I'm simply not there to win an argument. Number eight, be patient. The person you're dealing with may not respond immediately. And your immediate response to them cannot be, cannot be angry about not responding immediately. It shouldn't be, oh, what's the matter with you? I don't get it. I laid it all out. I was really patient. I confessed my sins. I even told you that I love you. And you haven't responded yet. You guys can laugh. I see some chuckles and it's okay. (laughs) We have to be patient. How patient is our God with us? That's the whole point. He is so patient. Honestly, would you, if you were God, let the earth continue to spin? long-suffering and patient. He is just amazing. That's the way he is. Be that way with the person you're dealing with. They might not respond straight away, but be patient. He is patient with them. Do Do this by remembering how patient he is with you. Again, you'll be demonstrating the gospel. Number nine, almost there. Remember your goal. It's not victory, but building up. If you're like me, you'll have to repeat this one a lot. It's not victory, but building up. Number 10, the final step. Be gentle and provide a way for easy confession. Is it not true when someone's backed into a corner? Most of us will want to fight our way out. We see God being so patient with the Israelites. They were backed into a corner when they hit the Red Sea. God loves his people. He opened a way for them, and they could easily get across. It was dry land. Provide this for the ones you love. Give them an easy way of an escape. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Can we provide for those we love an easy way of escape? One of the best ways to do this is being willing to confess your sins before them. We need to display that we're we're just a sinner confronting another beggar who needs to be at the cross constantly so that we can love Jesus more. As I wrap up here, 
I don't deserve to be giving you this message. I'm not an expert. My kids are available after this whole thing to tell you how much I'm not an expert on this. But please don't ask them. <laughs> but this, in the way I was, as I was going through this, and as Pastor Bon asked me to do this, I thank the Lord that I got the chance to kind of go through this again so I could see these things, lay them all out so I could know and I can get my mind fixed. I needed this more than any of you. So I thank you for listening. I thank you for the opportunity that I had to get this stuff clarified in my mind. And I pray that it might have just done something in somebody else's as well and help them clarify what the gospel is to do in our life to help us flourish. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you know I was not supposed to be a speaker here today. These things that I talked about today, I struggle with. My family knows that. But you are a gracious God. You and your Sovereign work, your providence had me here today. You gave me this so that it might be preached to me. For two weeks, preached to me. I thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your patience with me. Lord, I pray that we can take this, we can kill and mortify the sin, the idols in our lives. We can start looking at things with humility because pride infects us all. Lord, help us in confrontations. Help us to remember that we want people to grow and to flourish because we love them a love that can only come from you. Lord, we thank you again for what's going to happen here today as the, the other speakers get up here and challenge us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this church, this body, as we all come around each other and love on each other. I pray these things, Lord, in your Son's matchless name, Jesus. Amen.